we come to a portion of Luke chapter 13 that is, frankly, pretty frightening. It is one of those passages that um, we have seen some abuse, and we all discuss that, but we've seen the majority ignore, and that is a great danger. So this morning, as we go through and look at the question, are there few who are saved? And that is the question posed to our Savior. Um, as a result of listening to his ministry, we don't know who posed it, just one. We don't know if it was one of the disciples, someone in the crowd, but someone said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And having read through chapters 11, 12, and to this point in chapter 13, we can begin to understand how the disciples and the crowd could begin to wonder this. For the religious teachers of the law were frankly condemned. Christ has continuously narrowed down what it means to be a Christian throughout chapter 12 and into chapter 13, where he has, he has just uh, lopped off large sections of religious communities who thought that they could play these kinds of religious games and still be considered members of the kingdom of heaven. And so we find that uh, he has just continued to do that to the point that uh, the question was asked, are there a few who are saved? Just forthrightly, and Christ is going to address this, and we want to do that with him. And before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity again to gather and to look into your word. And Lord, we recognize this morning the, the weight of this, that this is truth with great authority in our life, with ultimate authority in our life. That whether we acknowledge it or not, we will be weighed according to it by our judge. Whether we choose to live by it or not, this is the standard that you will use to measure our lives, our faith, our ministry. And Lord, our prayer is that your spirit might move in us to convict where that is necessary, to instruct us, to encourage us, and Lord, to strengthen us. And that we might walk in that path that you have laid out for us. You've carefully delineated, guard us from error and from wrong. And Lord, our prayer is that we might be faithful, not only in the hearing today, but also in the submission to that hearing through obedience. As we leave this place, that we might discern your truth and walk accordingly. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, he is still on his way to Jerusalem. Luke, as a good narrative author, tells us the setting. We're still moving closer and closer and closer right on the cusp of the Passion Week. And Christ has greatly uh, narrowed and, and described and defined his ministry and what the ministry of the gospel is all about. The question, as we said, is, are there few who are saved? And he has an answer. His answer is uh, not to quantify it, who gets saved, but to personalize it. He doesn't give a generic message, but a very specific and direct one. He's looking at that one, I would assume, he looks at that one 
and says, you is an understood uh, subject there. You strive to enter through the narrow gate. The question of who gets saved and who doesn't get saved, Christ doesn't go into a great theological argument over the decree of God. He doesn't go into an extensive description of the uh, will of man. He doesn't in, engage himself in this kind of, of uh, you know, theological discussion that you might normally expect. Or rather, he comes with a direct address that says, you should be striving to care for things the way God wants in your life. The direct address of Christ in answer to what is what, what many have lifted up as a great theological question, we'll address it as that, but we cannot miss the main force of God, and that is the question isn't some esoteric thing that's way out there somewhere that doesn't that I can engage in impersonally. It comes down to this uh, command, if you will, this directive from Jesus Christ that when you consider who are being saved and who are not being saved, the question is, are you saved? What are you doing to enter into eternal life? What have you accomplished? What have you, uh, what, what has been accomplished in you? What is going on in your life? It is certain today that there are many that want to, uh, sit around and have this kind of discussion. Well, not many. I'd say there's a few that want to sit around and have this kind of a discussion without the personal nature of the answer. And so Christ's directive is strive to enter through the narrow gate. And some things are implied here very quickly. One is that it is something difficult. It is something that must be striven now, you might take this and say theologically, well, this means you have to earn your salvation. You have to go out there and do that. No. What he is describing is that you're going to have to enter in uh, to a singular portal. That singular portal to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's something we have to strive to identify and then to place our faith in. This is not so much that I'm going to work to earn my way into this doorway, or I'm going to work and build my own little doorway. That's what most people are trying to do. They're trying to build their own door to heaven. Christ says you're going to have to strive. You're going to have to look for. You're going to have to invest. You're going to have to place yourself um, looking for and identifying that narrow gate. There is one gate. And it's not wide. It's not... uh, uh, easily found as an indication here. So you're going to have to strive after. You're going to have to look for. You're going to have to uh, be able to identify it. And then you're going to have to submit to that. You're going to have to go and enter that gate and that gate alone. And the gate is narrow. In fact, so narrow that there is just one way. There is just one way. There are not a multiplicity of gates. There is not uh, a large gate. We have a narrow gate. One way. We have our children sing the little song. One way God said to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. And this is a, a statement of exclusivity of Christ. That there is no other option available to man. And while man would rather to see the fire marshals um, of the world satisfied, Fire marshals say what? You've got to have enough exits to, and entries to deal with the 
quantity of people inside. Well, Christ doesn't have that. There's a one single gate in. That is Jesus Christ. And even identifying Jesus Christ as the gate isn't enough. And there are those out there that have done that, and very possibly within the hearing of my voice this morning, those who think, well, I identify. No, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. But that's not enough. He doesn't say identify the gate. He doesn't say look at the gate. He doesn't say point at the gate. He doesn't say wave others to the gate. That's not what is going to accomplish our salvation, but rather we must enter through the gate. There are certainly those milling around in churches today who are well familiar that Jesus is the gate. But they have never entered through the gate. And there's a great distinguishment here. Uh, The indication overwhelmingly in this whole passage is that all of you are mingling around out here outside the gate. Jump down with me a few verses. It says in verse 26, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. (laughs) Isn't that enough? We ate and drank with you and we heard your teaching. Isn't that enough? And he says, no, you didn't come in. You didn't enter into the gate that I had prepared and the one and only gate into a relationship with God into the kingdom of heaven. And so, you can make claim to having great instruction by God, that you know all this information about Jesus Christ. You could have this great communion that you have with Him, and you can even partake in communion that we had on Christmas Eve. You could involve yourself in these pseudo-relationship activities and still not have entered the gate. And so, He tells us to strive. And that striving is not that we're going to go and build a gate, that we're going to knock down the gate. The gate is open. It is narrow. The demands of God must be satisfied, and they were only satisfied and could only be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we are not engaging ourselves in striving to build our own gate or to widen the gate of Christ, which is what I see disconcertingly, see going on in churches today. We are trying to engage ourselves in opening the gate up wider than God ever intended it to be. That somehow you don't have to have a true obedient faith in Jesus Christ where He is your Lord and Master and Savior to be able to be qualified to go through the gate. And this is a great lie. Is a lie that was perpetrated by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and from what I can tell in church history, has been perpetrated in every generation of Christianity upon the church are those who are in their leadership role who are saying, we're going to stretch open the gate a little bit wider of Jesus Christ and redefine what it means to have a saving faith. The saving faith has been sought to be watered down throughout the ages, so there's nothing new going on today. Or saving faith is becoming less and less and less significant of faith. Saving faith we have learned in the past is an enduring faith. It is a faith that lasts. It will over 
come and endure and thrive even in the midst of adversity, in the midst of temptation, uh, in the midst of trouble and struggles, of testing. Uh, it will overcome. This is the faith that Jesus Christ has been describing. It is a faith that will strive at every level to avoid hypocrisy. It is a faith that, that will strive to avoid covetousness. It's a faith that, that will be repentant. It is a repentant faith. It, it, and so it is a faith that, that uh, will bring us to the very edge and we will still follow Christ. And it is that individual who will have that entry with those fine words, well done, good and faithful servant, that we are called upon. And so we are called upon to be repentant, to be discerning of this kind of faith. He goes on and says the negation of that positive statement. The positive statement, strive to enter the narrow gate. You do that. You make sure of that. Now, here's the negation of that, or the negative of that positive statement. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And here we get into a passage that is often abused um, by a theological group that says, you see, no one is able to accept Christ if Christ doesn't first save them. Uh, And... The idea here is that God is going to bring us to this point of salvation and He's going to give us the faith to be saved and He has to do it all for us and really He has to pre-save us so that we can be saved because otherwise we're not able to be saved. But that is not the context of what Christ is trying to share. He is not teaching the inability of man to trust in Christ independent of a work of Christ that has to first happen in us. And this is what the Calvinist doctrine is, is that man is unable to trust in Christ. Therefore, God must first redeem him, must first do a spiritual work in him so that he can then respond. And God doesn't do that in everyone. He only does that in some people, the elect, and therefore is called the irresistible working of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit irresistibly calls you. You cannot turn away from it um, because He alone makes you able to trust in Christ. And now, as soon as you are able, you certainly will because He won't make anyone able who He doesn't want. All built upon this concept of this use of the word able. Because you are not able to come. But that's not the context at all. It doesn't end at this verse. Look at the very next verse. This is not a question of, a, of the capacity of man to have faith in Christ independently, but rather this is a question of timing. Let me say that again. This is not describing whether man has the capacity to place faith in Christ independently, but rather about timing. There is going to become a time when people will be unable to be saved. Because it won't be offered anymore. The gate will be closed. Look at it in the next verse. Very simple. And you wonder um, how you can miss this. It's so simple. 
uh, verse 25. Well, when is it that we will, will not in the future? It's a future. They will seek in the future. They will not be able to in the future. Do you see the future tense of verse 24? I say to you, many will seek and will not. Future tense. Now, what's going to happen in the future that's going to make them unable, even when they want to be saved? Verse 25. Once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. This is the time when people will not be able. They will seek and not be able to be saved. For the gate will be closed, the door shut, and none will pass any further. And this is what Christ is speaking at. He is speaking that this is the the time frame. This is the occasion. This is the opportunity that we have today to enter into this narrow gate. And we mill around out here as if we have forever to make this decision. Sure that I'm only a young person, like 70 or something, right? Pretty young. We had an almost 90-year-old at our house yesterday. She seemed pretty young still, but... um, I have time. I have, I'll have the occasion. The opportunities will be many. And I'll deal with this some other time when I'm done enjoying my life. And what we fail to recognize is the brevity of life altogether and the brevity of this opportunity. For many times as we move through our life, we are not moving closer to that gate, but farther away. Why is our children's program so Wonderful. It's, it's, you just can't imagine. You, you look at these children and you're like, you know, they so easily identify truth and they're so easily excited about it. They're responsive to it. And then we see uh, through family members, through peers, through, through all the things that go around and sometimes through us that we draw them away from simple faith in Jesus Christ. And God has a warning for that, by the way. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck than discourage someone from seeking Christ. I think the greatest discouragement children have from seeking Christ by faith is their own families. Because we don't model Christ to them. We don't encourage them and we don't consider that first and foremost. We consider their education is very important. We consider their material needs very important. We consider their entertainment extraordinarily important. I don't know why. Um, but somehow, their walk with God is not a priority in our homes. But we have this simple faith. And as we grow older and older, what we find is that we become jaded. That narrow gate, as it grows more distant to our sight, is more difficult to find, let alone to enter. So Christ here is instructing them, listen, right now you have a great opportunity. Right now you have a great opportunity. Lay hold of this opportunity now while it's afforded to you. Do not think that somehow because you walked around and even were healed by my hand, that you got to hear my instruction, that I came to your house and ate with you, which, by the way, he just had that powerful conversation with 
ruler of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue didn't like it very much, uh, regarding that very issue. Repent. Believe. Instead, they were angered by it. And so you can stake claim to all of this activity with Christ, but you haven't entered the gate, and this is the chance you have to do it right now. The directive here is not for the future. Strive to enter right now through the narrow gate. Because in the future, you're going to seek it and it won't be open. So do it now. You won't be able to be saved in the future. The door will shut one day. Oh, it will shut. The great description, once the master of the house has risen up. The idea here... Um, many people talk about like he's in bed asleep or something and, and I got to tell you our God does not sleep okay uh, neither does he slumber he doesn't get tired um, this rising up is not a rising up out of a sleep as though he is uh, as um, C.S. Lewis describes him as a absentee landowner or gardener um, that he's just gone away in a, a long ways off but rather that he's risen up um, to bring an end, to bring things to an end, to a culmination. He has risen up and shut the door. The season is over. The opportunities are gone. Not only will he not, not only is the opportunity to come to Christ gone, but even the seeking after it will be pointless because you won't be able to. Now those who would like us to believe that as long as there's breath on any man on the earth that throughout the whole history of the ages that men can come to know Christ as their Savior have not studied Scripture well enough. There are at least two seasons that we know salvific faith really wasn't available to anyone. We know that while, while Noah was building the ark after he identified it, God had come into determined judgment. I am going to pour out my wrath on the earth, even though it's going to take you dozens and dozens of years to build this ark, and you're going to preach for all that period of time. None are going to respond. Determined wrath. None came. None. God had shut the door. Christ takes that illustration and says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. What other period of time? So it will be. At another day. There was one other occasion, by the way, as with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's begging for just a few, of just a few, just a few, and, and no one was interested in the message, not even Lot's wife. Don't think being married to a faithful person is enough either. But there's going to be a time when salvific faith won't be available, when you'll be seeking it, but you cannot find it. It will not, the opportunity won't exist. Uh, And there's only one time that I can find in my study of God's Word, and that is that period of time when God rises up for judgment. He rises up in His wrath, and He says, The door is shut. Now there is only wrath. You cannot be saved. And this is that seven-year period that we call, um, we mis- 
named the Great Tribulation, the, the Day of Wrath. It is the time of Jacob's trouble is how the Bible describes it. And, and it is a time when there is, there is no opportunity. And, and that time is when the master of the house has risen up, has shut the door, and now everyone wants to come to the door. They stand outside, knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us! And it's too late because the door is shut. Shame on those who would take this verse 24 and try to say that no one on earth today can, is able to get saved unless God first makes them more than man. This is about timing. This is about when. And I want to share with you that today is the day of salvation. And the instruction of Christ here in verse 24 is still an instruction today. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Most people aren't going to enter it. They will stand around it. They will eat and drink with you. They will even listen to what you have to teach about it. As long as they don't have to do anything with it. It's okay as long as you don't get personal, Pastor. Just don't get personal with me about this stuff. Nothing new. Jesus Christ had to deal with it. We're okay eating with you. We're okay drinking with you. You can come to our house. We'll have a great time. And we love sitting here in your stories. We love hearing your what you teach. The multitudes, they loved how he didn't care what the Pharisees thought. He put them in their place all the time. They, and he's going to do that yet again. Um, you're not too long from now. Um, and they're just enjoying all that. But that isn't a relationship with God. That isn't entering the gate. None of that qualifies. So what is it? We have some examples of those who entered the gate. And from those examples, we learn what is involved. Their names are listed here in verse 28. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God. In addition, verse 29 says there's going to be people from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south who are going to sit down in the kingdom of God. Oh, I'm so glad for that verse. I'm so glad it didn't end at the end of um, verse 28 with that list. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets. So he has two groupings of descriptions of these who are going to come to Christ, who are going to enter this narrow gate, and are going to sit down in the kingdom of God. And he goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the prophets. What he has just, just done is gone from the beginning of Israel to its conclusion. And if you read through the through Old Testament, you'll find that the really concluding aspects of Israel's uh, pre-Christ place is, is really the remnant is personified by the prophets. He says, how did these people enter the gate? How did they strive? They live by faith. Paul will pick this up very powerfully. Author of Hebrews will pick this up very powerfully. Uh, we are instructed that it is by faith. They lived. They walked by faith. They believed God and it was counted for them as righteousness. This is what it means to enter the gate. They humbled themselves and obeyed and were obedient even to the point of death. 
even to the point of slaughtering the child of promise. They trusted God and lived by faith. Oh, they made mistakes, but overwhelmingly it was their faith in God that they would follow Him. And then that same opportunity, that same relationship made available, and it find, we find verse 29 where, I don't know if I come from the west or the north, the east in comparison to this, but he says they're going to come from all directions. You see, this narrow gate is narrow in the terms, but it is not in terms of how many can enter. As long as it is open, as many can enter who desire to enter. There is no limit. The narrowness of this gate is not the decree of God that narrows who can be saved. The narrowness of the gate describes how we are saved. One person, Jesus Christ. We must receive that singular message and place our life in that hands. And again, um, this, the easy believism really that, that it, it, we can identify it from the 70s or whatever, but it's been around since Paul's day. This idea that, well, I can believe and I can live however I like and still claim to believe. And he told the Corinthians, no. Nah. He told the Galatians, no. Doesn't work that way. John told people in his writings, in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, no, doesn't work that way. You cannot claim to believe in God, have God as your Father, and not love. You cannot claim, make that claim and not obey. You cannot make that claim and not walk with Him. You cannot make that claim. James, oh wow. You cannot make the claim of faith and have nothing to show to evidence it. Faith without works is dead. And so we must evidence this faith, and this is the kind of faith that Christ is talking about here that was exemplified by Abraham, by Isaac, by Jacob, by all the prophets who are faithful in their ministry and they're serving, they're walking with God, even though it cost them their lives, it cost them their liberty, it cost them their family, it cost them what we would consider a happy life. I mean, they're just out there happily tending sheep and God says, um, I got a job for you going to ruin the rest of your life. You're going to be miserable from the world's perspective. People are going to hate you. You're going to lose almost everything. You're going to be in prison. They're going to kill you. People are going to speak evil of you. You just keep preaching what I tell you to preach. Oh, that we would preach that kind of faith. That's salvific faith. I will follow you no matter what. You speak it, I'll obey it, no matter the cost. And these are the ones that Christ knows. We might think, oh, it's only going to be them, but verse 21 tells us that there's going to be, among all peoples, those who will come to God with such faith and will sit down in the kingdom of God. What joy that I can be a part of this if I'll simply rise up and strive to enter this narrow gate and exclusive, the, the exclusive Savior and place all of my trust there and walk in accordance with that claim that I, my faith might be established. Oh, that we might have such salvific faith to trust in Jesus and Him alone. 
See, it's not that the world doesn't know the truth. Do you notice that in this passage? The people knew where the gate was. They knew where the gate was. It wasn't that they couldn't find the gate. They knew where it was. When the gate became shut and the opportunities lost, they were there pounding on the door. Let us in! They knew exactly where the gate was. It wasn't that Jesus Christ was some a stranger to them. They had eaten with Him. They had heard teaching about Him. They had eaten with people who followed Him. It wasn't that they were unaware of their own dilemma. For immediately they come and say, Oh, please let us in. We need to go in through this door. Please, Lord, open it for us. And again, to go with my message last Sunday, notice it didn't say, Savior, Savior, open for us. It says, Lord, Lord. For Lordship comes first, then salvation. Christ isn't Lord. He cannot save you. The most frightening statement in all of Scripture is when Jesus Christ turns to someone and says, I don't know you. It is the most frightening statement in all of Scripture. Depart from me, I don't know you. Where you are from. You see, you're from another kingdom. You're from the kingdom of this world. You never entered into my kingdom through the one narrow gate. And so I don't know you. You are not a, you don't belong here. And so, Depart. Leave the gate. You are a worker of iniquity. And this is what he describes. Even the religious that are trying to do it by their own efforts and energies to build their own gate or to widen God's gate. And God says, no, the gate is set. And this is how you must come to me. By faith in my Son Jesus Christ. A salvific faith that is obedient faith. It is a, a faith that responds to God with love and with with uh, uh, uh not only obedience against uh, of righteousness, but these didn't. They didn't come with that kind of faith. God says you're working iniquity if you're trying to build your own gate. It's sin to try to build your. It's sin to widen my gate. The gate is narrow for a reason, because there's only one way to satisfy the requirements of a holy, holy, holy God. There's only one way. That way is given to us here in this word. Thus they are at the gate and they are thrust out, it says, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the alternative to entering this narrow gate is to simply stay in your sin. And the world has two wrong ideas. The first wrong idea that is very strongly propagated in our children today in the public school system and the, and the science community wants to propagate it as well to us is that uh, things are just going to go on the way they are. Nothing is going to ever... There's not a culmination to everything. There wasn't a beginning to everything and there's not a conclusion to anything. And so things just continue on and you'll have your existence and then you'll stop to exist, stop existing and that's all and things will just keep going on and on that way um, forever because they deny that there's a creator. Therefore, they deny that there's a king. 
there's a judge. They deny it all. Everything will just keep going. And largely, um, people believe that. And we are, in our culture at least, insulated, insulated, not isolated, insulated from uh, really knowing what death is all about. Um, we don't kill our own animals. We don't uh, see dead people. We don't deal with dead people very much. Uh, even when they die, we don't deal with them. We, we you know, the morgue takes them to the um, funeral home and the funeral home, and next thing we see them, they, they got makeup on and a suit or, or dress or something, and then we only look at them for a little bit, and then they're gone. See, we're, we insulate ourselves from believing that death is real. And largely, people believe that. The second lie, first lie, everything will continue the way it is, and so there's not going to be an end. Uh, and so uh, there's not going to be, you're not going to be thrust out anywhere because this place is going to continue. But God makes it very clear that this place will come to an end and you'll be thrust out of it into another place. And that place is described in Revelation as the lake of fire. It is described here in verse 28 There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth um, when you see what you lost. And uh, this is a a powerful statement of what's going to happen. And and the second thing that I find is that there's no eternal judgment. This is being taught not only, first of all, it's not being taught in the world because the world says everything's going to go on, uh, matter is eternal, and so everything just cycles through and there's no beginning, no end, no creator, and therefore no judge or king. Um, but the lie from the church is there is no eternal punishment. Again, because they have twisted who God is. God is loving, compassionate, and he cannot possibly uh, have people in eternal punishment. It is against his nature. And if you look at cults and cultic teachings, you'll find all of them, one of the things they do in order to gain a great following, a great hearing, is extract that from truth. And, and all cults have some truth in them. You know that, that they pick and choose, though. They cherry-pick truths that we like, and they, don't, and they throw out the ones that people aren't too happy with. And, and eternal punishment is one of those things they kind of throw out. And I don't care. You can talk to Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, and, and ultimately, there is no eternal punishment under any of them. Seventh-day Adventists, you go through, and the frightening thing is that's coming into mainstream Christianity. Where I can go to a book signing at a Christian bookstore and hear the manager of the Christian bookstore, well, you know, I've really struggled with this, and I just think God is just too loving to have a hell, an eternal place of punishment. And I'm like, isn't that convenient for you? But it's not what the Bible says. Why? That every time it is prefaced by God is too loving to do this. And I never hear anyone say, you know, God is too holy to save anybody. Think about that for a little bit. God is too holy to save any of us. God is too holy, holy, holy to let any of us in his presence. And therefore, there's not an eternal heaven either. See, all you have to do is have an imbalanced God and you have an imbalanced theology altogether. It all starts with an imbalanced God. 
Christ says there will be weeping ongoing and gnashing of teeth ongoing. Why? Because you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets, in the kingdom of God, and you're going to be thrust out. I want you to get that image in your mind. We often think that there's no way that anyone in, in, in the lake of fire is going to know what we're doing, that we're not going to know what's going on down there because we have this warped, weird view of things that we can't be happy knowing that God is holy, I guess. And they can't really be miserable knowing that God is gracious and merciful. Um, but the fact is, is that is exactly what's going to be happening. Just as in the description of Lazarus, and the rich man, um, they had a, a line of sight to each other. In fact, they were able to hear one another. And the ones could cry out to the others, and the others could answer. And so we have this described, that these individuals will see the heaven that God's prepared for those who will go through the narrow gate into his kingdom. And with that line of sight, what are they going to do? They are going to weep, and they are going to gnash their teeth, because they're going to be thrust out, and they are going to be in this place of eternal punishment. While we sit down in the kingdom of God, those of faith, whether we are from the east, north, south, west, whether we are of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will be thrust out into eternal darkness. There is an eternal place of judgment. It does exist. For Christ taught it, the Bible declares it, therefore we must believe it, and we should live and preach as if we really believed it. There's one last phrase here that I haven't gotten to, verse 30. That sits as a final reminder in this portion of Scripture of what is involved to bring us to salvific faith. He says, and indeed there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. I say, what does this have to do with this description of entering the kingdom of God and, and those milling around the gate that won't go through the gate? Um, is there... Is he talking about the first and last going into the gate? Uh, what is he referring to? The position that he has been talking about consistently has been those who claim, who state claim to religiousness and therefore a right relationship with God and those who truly have a right relationship with God. And the distinction between these in earthly terms as we would look at them is those who have made themselves Least have made themselves last. Those who seek to be first were who? They were the priests. They were the Pharisees. They always sought to be first. Christ has repeatedly spoken against that. You know, you walk in and you want to go up to the most important table because you're sure that you're the most important person there. Remember that parable? And what does he say? What's going to happen when the when the host of the feast comes up and says, you take that seat back there. This seat was reserved for someone else. You see, they thought they were first. They thought they were on top of it religiously. They thought they had the answers. Instead, they're dead last. 
They're on the outside of the gate. They never made it through. They were, they are, they don't belong in the, in the kingdom. And, and he's gonna, this is gonna take us into chapter 14 a little bit, but this idea, Christ is gonna develop this throughout some of his teaching as he enters Jerusalem and Bethany. Um, but, and we're gonna see it more there. But this whole idea that, that those who seek to elevate themselves here, who are functioning both religiously and irreligiously out of arrogance and pride, these are the ones who will be those last ones that will never get in. They'll be thrust out. So who are these who are in the kingdom? Described as last who will be first in the future. These are those who make themselves low. Fundamentally, The obstacle to our, in our faith is our pride. The reason we don't place faith in Jesus Christ is our arrogance. And so Christ rightly says, you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven? Be the servant of all. What does that mean? It means that you've humbled yourself. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob humbled themselves before God. All the prophets, they humbled themselves before him and said, I have no right to question your commands in my life. I have to obey it. Um, and any misery that ensues, such is the case, I will serve thee. You see, salvific faith necessitates our humility. That we humble ourselves. Those who want to make their own gate or widen God's gate are those who haven't surrendered themselves to God. But they sure look good. They sure seem to have it on top of things. They sure seem to be first in the kingdom of heaven. And God says, oh, they're last, if at all. They're outside. They're the ones who are going to wait till it's too late. But it's those who come in. who make themselves last because they've humbled themselves. And Christ says they are the first. They'll be the first. The first to come to Christ are not the proud but the humble, not the rich but the poor. Those are the first. Those are the ones that will come to Christ. Those who are broken in their spirit and in their hearts before God and God's goodness, as they lead all men to repentance, they have responded with true repentance. And so we are called today to enter through a narrow gate. And this is where we direct others. We don't want them just eating with us. We don't want them just milling around, listening to interesting stories and sermons. We want them by faith to enter the gate, God's way, God's gate. We have a narrow message. We have about the narrowest message on earth. One way. Not my way. Not the Baptist's way. One way. God's way. Which is Jesus Christ. Not through works, but by faith, evidence in works. 
This is what God calls us to, to humble ourselves, to recognize his one way and walk in. Walk in. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the narrow gate, knowing that without it there would be no gate. Oh, the grace and mercy that you have had, knowing that none of us should be in heaven. Knowing that we are a front to you, that you loved us sufficiently, so much, that you provided that gate. The only means of satisfying your demands and meeting our needs. Lord, our prayer is that we might be faithful, declaring this one way, without apology, without trying to add other gates for people to enter or to allow people to mill around in front of your gate without entering it and thinking that that is good enough and without trying to widen your gate. Lord, help us to call people into your narrow gate. And Lord, help us to recognize the necessity that comes upon us of salvific faith to walk on the narrow way. Give us the discernment and strength to do so. Not again according to our wisdom, but by your Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.